0: Welcome to JourneywithJesus.net, a weekly web scene for the Global Church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled Vain Worship, and it's based upon the lectionary readings for September second, twenty eighteen. I grew up in a church where jewelry was not allowed. No one in the congregation wore engagement rings or wedding bands. Women and girls weren't permitted to wear rings, necklaces, bracelets, or earrings. Even play-jewelry, the pink plastic rings I'd pull out of cereal boxes or the bead bracelets I'd make at my friends' birthday parties, was banned. Anyone who showed up on a Sunday morning sporting an ornament, even first-time visitors ignorant of the prohibition, could be denied communion. Growing up, I had no idea why God hated jewelry. I was told that my bare ears and unadorned wrists were visible signs of my wholehearted devotion to Jesus. I was told that God's children don't need outward adornment because we're clothed in righteousness. I was told that storing up treasure in heaven is more important than wearing silver, or gold, or diamonds on earth. I was told that avoiding material distractions and pleasures would help me grow as a Christian. As a kid, I wasn't brave enough to argue with my elders. But in secret, I knew they were wrong about the relationship between my jewelry and my devotion. Not being allowed to wear pretty bangles on my wrists or get my ears pierced on my twelfth birthday like all my non-Christian friends did not make me love God more. It made me resent Him. Why did Jesus want me to feel excluded, different, and weird at school? Why did He care more about my outsides than He did about my insides? What was the point of prating my unornamented limbs in church every Sunday morning if my hidden heart was seething the whole time? I only learned the whole story many years later. Apparently, when my great-grandparents had been newlyweds, a large-scale charismatic revival had swept through South India, winning many converts from the ornate mainline churches of my forebears. Many young adults had embraced the simple faith the revivalists encouraged in those days and chosen, often at great personal and social cost, to change their lifestyles for the sake of the gospel. One of the lifestyle changes centered around jewelry— in a time when gold meant social capital in India, when even Christian families judged each other's worth by the weight of the jewelry their women wore, when girls whose fathers couldn't produce enough jewelry for their dowries had to remain unmarried, the decision to forsake ornament in the name of Jesus was a radical one. It spoke powerfully to the equalizing power of the gospel. No longer would my great-grandparents and their peers participate in the snobbery of their time and place. Instead, they would live counterculturally and practice what Jesus preached. Even if it meant losing their social standing and family honor. No matter what the cost, they would embrace humility, simplicity, and equality as testimonies of Christ's non discriminating love. That was the history behind my church's no ornament rule. It was a noble history, for sure, but the problem was its nobility had frozen in time. Our context had changed, and so had the cultural and social meanings behind wearing a bracelet, a necklace, or a pair of earrings to church. Clearly, what had begun as an earnest and costly attempt to bring the sacred into everyday life had hardened over the generations into a spiritless legalism. What started out as a gesture of radical welcome and openness had become a tool of exclusion and self-righteousness. What grew from a holy desire to live as Christ lived had degenerated into an empty human tradition. In this week's Gospel reading, Jesus confronts a group of Pharisees who accuse his disciples of disregarding the tradition of the elders. Specifically, the Pharisees ask why some of Jesus' followers eat their meals with defiled hands. That is, why they eat without performing the ritual hand-washing expected of observant Jewish people before meals. To our modern ears, the accusation might sound ridiculous and trivial. But in fact, the Pharisees are asking a legitimate question, a question that still has relevance for us today. Consider the context. The first-century Jews among whom Jesus ministered were an oppressed minority living in an occupied land. How are they supposed to keep their faith pure and vibrant against a backdrop of colonization? In the midst of profound religious and cultural diversity, how are they to maintain their identity, their integrity, their heritage? The Pharisees' solution to the problem in this week's lectionary is to contain and codify the sacred. How can God's people show forth their faith among pagans? They can practice the ancient rituals of their elders down to the last letter. They can wash their hands before every meal refuse table fellowship with tax collectors, prostitutes, and other morally compromised sinners, and set themselves apart in everyday life as God's righteous and holy people. I can't speak to their intentions, but Jesus can, and he does. Quoting the prophet Isaiah, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. Ouch. Ouch. But aren't the Pharisees just trying, like the people at my childhood church, to keep the sacred sacred? Aren't they making a noble attempt to serve God in a public, visible way? It's important to note that Jesus doesn't condemn ritual handwashing in his response to the Pharisees. He doesn't argue that all religious traditions are evil. What he indicts is the legalism, self-righteousness, and exclusivism that keeps the Pharisees from freely loving God and loving their neighbors in ways that are relevant to their time and place. What he challenges is their unwillingness to evolve, to mature, and to change for the sake of God's kingdom. What he grieves is the Pharisees' compulsive need to police the boundaries, to decide who is in and who is out, based on their own narrow definitions of purity and piety. Again, it's easy for us moderns to look down on the moral rigidity of the Pharisees, but honestly, are we really so different? Don't we sometimes behave as if we are finished products, with nothing new to discover about the Holy Spirit's movements in the world? Don't we cling to spiritual traditions and practices that long ago ceased to be life-giving simply because we can't bear to change the way we've always done things? Don't we set up religious litmus tests for each other and decide who's in and who's out based on conditions that have nothing to do with Jesus' open-hearted love and hospitality? Don't we fix it on the forms of piety we can put on display for others to applaud instead of cultivating the secret and hidden life of God deep within our souls? It doesn't matter what specific form our legalism takes. In some churches, it centers around jewelry and clothing. In others, it comes down to defying one worship style over another. In still others, it means policing the political affiliations and allegiances of parishioners. In some faith communities, the lines in the sand have to do with women clergy or gay marriage or racial justice or economic equality. The guises vary, but in the end, legalism in any guise deadens us towards God and towards our neighbors. It freezes us in time, making us irrelevant to the generations that come after us. It makes us stingy and small-minded, cowardly and anxious. It strips away our joy and robs us of peace. It causes us, in Jesus' chilling words, to honor God with our lips, but to worship Him in vain. So what can we do? How can we honor God with our whole selves? How can we discern whether a tradition is life-giving or not? Jesus gives his listeners this advice. Notice what comes out of you. Notice what fruit your adherence to tradition bears. Does your version of holiness lead to hospitality, to inclusion, to freedom? Does it cause your heart to open wide with compassion? Does it lead other people to feel loved and welcome to God's table? Does it make you brave? Does it ready your mind and body for God who is always doing something fresh and new? Does it facilitate another step forward in your spiritual evolution? Like everything else Jesus offers us, his confrontation with the Pharisees is an invitation. It's an invitation to consider what is really sacred and inviolable in our spiritual lives. It's an invitation to go deeper, past lip service, past tradition, past piety. It's an invitation to practice what this week's epistle calls pure religion, a religion of love for the widow, the orphan, the stranger, and the outcast, a religion of faith in a surprising, innovating, and ever-creating God. It's not a safe religion, or an easy one, but it's a religion of the whole heart, and it is far more precious than gold. For books this week, Dan reviews Joy, a hundred poems edited by Christian Wyman. You don't have to look far in our day for good reasons to despair. Government corruption and incompetence, corporate malfeasance, gun violence, opioid epidemics, systemic racism the mindlen- mindlessness and vulgarity of television, powerful technological means like gene-editing or big data, with a precious few ethical ends to constrain them, a third of American children who do not graduate from high school, and a world in which half the population lives on pennies a day. This book of poetry offers a counterintuitive piece of advice. Don't go there. Don't take the bait. However low the sociological trends and opinion polls sink, don't yield to the spirit of despair. Rather, and despite all that we know and experience, choose the most radical act of cultural defiance, the subversive act of genuine joy. Joy, these poets affirm, isn't just possible. It is an essential aspect of being truly and fully human. Joy is more like an epiphany than an intellectual effort or psychological emotion. It is often mediated through an experience in nature, like the smell of summer rain, the beauty of a flower, or the pounding waves of the ocean surf. Joy comes to us in the sacred ordinary, like working in the garden or enjoying a long run. It's different than mere pleasure or happiness. Joy is a sort of provocation or longing that nothing can satisfy, a stab or ache that points us to the transcendent. In my own favorite poem for this collection, joy is even a duty or obligation. Consider A Brief for the Defense by Jack Gilbert. Sorrow everywhere, slaughter everywhere, if babies are not starving someplace, they are starving somewhere else, with flies in their nostrils. But we enjoy our lives because that's what God wants. Otherwise the mornings before summer dawn would not be made so fine. The Bengal tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously well. The poor women at the fountain are laughing together between the suffering they have known and the awfulness in their future, smiling and laughing while somebody in the village is very sick. There is laughter every day in the terrible streets of Calcutta, and the women laugh in the cages of Bombay. If we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. We must risk delight. We can do it without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. If the locomotive of the Lord runs us down, we should give thanks that the end had magnitude. We must admit there will be music despite everything. We stand at the prow again of a small ship, anchored late at night in the tiny port looking over to the sleeping island. The waterfront is three shuttered cafes and one naked light burning. To hear the faint sound of oars in the silence as a rowboat comes slowly out and then goes back is truly worth all the years of sorrow that are to come we must risk joy, and we do so without any sense of false consciousness, or even especially of false conscientiousness. In Christian parlance, the English mystic Juliana of Norwich put it this way, the greatest honor we can give Almighty God is to live gladly because of the knowledge of his love. For Movies This Week, Dan reviews Isle of Dogs. Wes Anderson wrote, directed, and produced this dramatic comedy that opened at the Berlin Film Festival where he won the award for Best Director. It's an animated film that uses the old-school stop-action technique in which physical objects are manipulated in small increments for each successive frame, and so when sped up they appear to be moving, in contrast to the newer technology of computer-generated imagery, or CGI. The movie is set in the dystopian future of Japan's Megasaki City, which is ruled by an evil mayor named Kobayashi. The mayor hates dogs, and so after a viral outbreak of snout fever, he declares that the city has reached a canine saturation point and banishes all the dogs of Megasaki to a dreadful place called Trash Island. This despite the fact that a professor of Watanabe and his fellow scientists have found a cure for snout fever, and also that the first dog to be banished is Spots, the beloved pet of the mayor's adopted nephew, Atari Kobayashi. The plot of the movie is thus young Atari's search-and-rescue mission among the banished dogs on Trash Island, Anderson has been criticized for gross stereotypes and cultural appropriation, but in my view, this was still a clever and creative film that would make for a great family film night. And finally, for poetry this week, Today by Mary Oliver. Today I'm flying low, and I'm not saying a word. I'm letting all the voodoos of ambition sleep. The world goes on as it must the bees in the garden rumbling a little, the fish leaping, the gnats getting eaten and so forth. But I'm taking the day off, quiet as a feather. I hardly move, though really I'm traveling a terrific distance. Stillness, one of the doors, into the temple. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for September 2nd, 2018. I'm Debbie Thomas.